After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known, to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brother had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Read that we together verses 1 and 2, and we're going to look at these two verses uh, today. John chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, first of all, after this, after the incident of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes near Bethesda, Bethsaida, and a long discourse with the Jews at Capernaum in the, in the synagogue, as we've seen previously in John chapter 6, we see this whole conversation about him being the bread of life and him, is the, him having the authority to give life to them. And ultimately, how people must drink, uh, must eat of his body and drink of his blood. Now, Jesus himself, after this whole incident, most likely went to Jerusalem. After, uh, uh, he mo most likely have went to Jerusalem during the Passover feast, and then he has left Jerusalem because that he knows of the plot that people had against him, that they have plotted to kill him. The Jews were seeking to kill him, as we've seen later on in John chapter 7, verse 1. So, knowing that, he left. He left Judea. He left Judea and went straight to Galilee. Now, first of all, some people will look at this and say that Christ himself is being cowardly. He's afraid of death. He's afraid of what the Jews were doing, that is, to seek to kill him. However, the explanation given to us uh, later on when we look at verse 8 is not the case. Christ wasn't cowardly. Christ wasn't afraid. But he says that his time is not yet fully come. Now, two things that we notice here. 
first of all, Christ, knowing, knowing that Christ is not being coward, knowing that Christ knows that his time is not yet come, Christ knows his purpose. Christ knows that he came here to die. He came to this, to this world to save us. He came to this world as a sacrifice. Many of us, many of the people in this world thinks that Christ was died accidentally in the sense that he wasn't planning to die. But yet, he met up with the Jews. The Jews hated him and they had to put him to death. But we see clearly here that Jesus knew what was going on. And he, uh, he asserted that his time has not yet come. He knows when's the time and it has not been yet. He was waiting for the period of time when he was going to be hung on the cross for each and every single one of our sins. He proclaims to them that his time has not yet come. He recognizes his duty. He wasn't afraid, but he knows the time, the time that God has dedicated for that, for the, for the sacrifice that is about to come. So instead of going to Judea, he went to Galilee. He was not, uh, yeah, he was not afraid, but he was cautious. It was prudence of, and he's cautious that Christ knew that his time was not yet up. Now, there's two things that we see here, first of all. Judea is the home to the Jews. It's the most, I was, yeah, the most famous place for the Jews. Jerusalem is where all the Jews gathered. It is where God's people gathered. But yet, we realize here that Jesus left them for it. He went to Galilee. There's not as many Jews, of course, as in Judea. You see, first of all, that we note, the gospel light is justly taken away from those that endeavor to extinguish it. Christ will withdraw from those that drive him from them, will hide his face from those that spit in it, and justly shut up his bowels from those who spurn at them. These are God's people, recognize that. God's chosen nation. But we recognize now, when we look at it in, from a new Testament perspective, we recognize that when God say speak of the Israelites, the Jews as his chosen people, it doesn't mean that the Jews are all saved, but it is the chosen people that God wished to use to share his message. And in a similar manner, when we look at Judas previously in John chapter 6, in the last part of John chapter 6, Judas himself was chosen. Judas himself was the 12. He was the apostles. But he was chosen for his for God's ministerial duties. But yet God did not choose him for salvation. In a similar manner, God did not choose the Jews for salvation. The Jews despised Christ. The Jews should have known about Christ, who he was, what he is coming to do, the prophecies that prophesize about Christ's coming, what he will come to do. But yet the Jews neglected Christ. They turned their back against Christ and they walked away. They denied Christ. And in the same way, Christ denied them. It was an active, uh, this is an act of active walking away from the Jews. The privilege that has been given to them was taken away. Now, this is something that we see here. It turns their back from the people. The people who proud themselves of praising God. Yet Christ turned his back against them. For they did not truly worship God but did not truly know God. In fact, they tried to put God to death, put Christ to death. That's the first thing. The gospel was justly taken away. Now, second thing that we know here is rather interesting. Christ knows 
that at this point of time, it's not good for him to uh, to stay in Jerusalem. It's not good for him to stay with the Jews. He knows that he's going to be put to death. He knows that there's an in, imminent danger there that he cannot be avoided. And so in a very similar way, it teaches us something here. It shows us something here. It is not wrong. It's not wrong for us to withdraw or abstain for our own safety and perseverance and to choose to uh, choose the service of those places where there is less uh, privilege, less danger in some sense. In fact, in some ways, it is advisable. You know, when we look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, it teaches us that also, in verse 23. And they persecute in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is something that is quite important. Many people today, uh, we are hard-headed. We say that we want to preach. We have, a, we have a firm heart. We have a very great heart, charitable heart, to go out there to preach the gospel. Some of us might even think about flying to North Korea to preach the gospel. Yes, that is good. But yes, that is not wise. You know, if you were to search online about this guy called J. Chow, C-H-A-U, he actually went to this place called West Sentinel Island in which is an island part of India that is a there are native tribe living on the island and basically they have no contact with modern men. He went there at the age of 27 thinking that he's doing a very noble job of preaching the gospel. Some of them saw him as a martyr in some ways but yet when we see here it might not be so much of the case. Is he truly wise in doing so? He went there at the age of 27 and the first thing when he landed on the island he was killed died for his faith in some ways. But yet, when we look at here, people say that men are cowardly, we dare not to go into dangerous places. But yet the scripture us teach, teaches us something different. The place is not willing to receive Christ. If the place is hostile towards the gospel, leave the place. Go somewhere else where people want to hear this gospel. Go to the next household, go to the next village, go to the next city, go to the next person. Some people in this world will never listen to the gospel and never want to hear the gospel. Some people in this world, when they first hear the gospel, they will receive it and they will embrace it and they will live it on their life, proclaiming the gospel. There are both sides. This, there are both sides to these stories. We must recognize that. When we preach, there is no fear. Move on. Go on to places where God will be received. Move on to places where God wished for his gospel to be preached. It might not be the Jews. It might be the Gentiles. It might be those who live in Galilee. It might not be those who live in Jerusalem. Now the next thing that we see of, uh, of COVID, uh, the providence of God, that if the providence of God casts persons of merit into places of obscurity and little note, we must not be taught strange. If God sent us to places that is unexpectable, not dangerous of course, but unexpectable, we should not be strange about it. We should not be strange. Look at what Christ did when he went into Galilee. He went about in Galilee. He wasn't sitting still. He wasn't lying on his bed. He wasn't waiting for things to happen. He went about in Galilee to preach. He walked around. He went around went door to door preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He wasn't waiting. He went out there to preach. 
Christ wasn't lazy about his ministry. Christ was active. He didn't just come here to save the Jews. He came here for the Gentiles also. When you see him going about in Galilee, we see his heart for his people. Sorry, we see his heart towards those that are longing for the gospel. We see Christ going about in Galilee to preach the gospel. The Jews are on him, but yet he still preach the gospel. This is what we are to learn from. This is who we are to learn from. Be out there, be bold, proclaim who we believe. Some will not believe, move on. Some will receive, tell them more. Tell them more, those who are genuinely seeking Christ, those who are fit for Christ. Now, another thing, note, Christ did not stay in Jerusalem where the, Jerusalem, uh, the Jews expected him to be. The seat of Moses was there. Everyone was prepared for Christ to crown him, literally crowning him as the king. But yet, that's not what Christ seek. He wasn't seeking for this earthly rewards. He wasn't seeking for earthly praises. He has all those, he can have all those things. But yet, that's not what Christ seeked. The praises of man is not like how, the praises of man towards God is not like how man praises the, our earthly kings. Now, it's something for us to ponder. What does Christ seek truly from us? Now, the next thing that we see here is that uh, the, the, the period of this incident, the time of this incident was the Feast of Booths, or what we call, or what sometimes is called the Feast of ta the Tabernacle. Now, in the Jewish tradition, there are three major feasts. First of all, is we have the Passover Feast, that is the time when they left, uh, they left uh, uh, Egypt, we have the Pentecost and we have the Tabernacles or we might call the Feast of the Booth. In fact, this feast itself occurs usually around September to October. If I'm not wrong, for this year, the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacle happens uh, on 9th October that week. So what is this feast actually? Well, this feast is a celebration that lasts around seven days. The purpose of this feast is to celebrate and to commemorate the setting up of the tent or of the tabernacle itself. So during these seven days, most of the Jews will be gathered out in the wilderness. They will be gathered outside and they will set up tents. Now, of course, the tent is not the tent that we have today, you know, plastic and it's all waterproof and whatnot. Those are really just a piece of cloth below and a piece, another bigger piece of cloth on top of them to shelter them. It's to remember what God himself has done for them when during the period when they were in the wilderness. Now, first of all, when we talk about this thing, it is give us a typology, it's a type, it's to show us something, it's to foreshadow something. When they were setting up tents in the wilderness during that time, it was pointing forward to something. That something is God, right? God was in the midst of them. In a very similar manner, God has set up a tent in our own heart. That God has set up not just in the midst of us, not just in the midst of us, but he set up a tent in us. That represents that Christ himself dwell within us. That is itself, the, uh, there's a figurative aspect to that. And also, they commemorated God's providence, that what God has done for them when they were in the wilderness. 
and God has shaded them. They have chosen October. Some some have speculated that why is it October and September that period? Well, most likely it's because it's not supposed to be enjoyable for them. It's to realize and recognize and to rely on God during this period of time. And besides their dwelling and sleeping and eating and drinking in their booths, there was various other rites which was performed by them. As particularly the carry of palm or uh, palm tree branches in their hands, or what they call it a uh, lulap, which was made up of branches of palm tree, uh, myrtle, and willow bound up together in a bundle, which was carried in the right hand, and a palm citron in the left. And as they carry them, they wave them three times towards the several quarters of the world. And each day they went about the altar once with this in their hands saying the words of Psalm 118 verse 25, save now I beseech thee O Lord, O Lord I beseech thee and send now prosperity. And on the seventh day they went about the altar seven times. Also there was a great illumination in the temple at the going out of the first day of the feast. They went down to the court of the women. They made a great preparation and there were golden candles there and at the head of them four golden basin and four ladders to every candle and four young priests had four pitchers of oil that held a hundred and twenty locks which they put into each basins and one of the old preachers and griddles of the priests they made wicks and with them lighted them there was not a court uh, not a court in Jerusalem, which was not lighted with that light. So basically, it's a huge event. It's a huge festival. It's a huge, in a way, a celebration and a commemoration of the Jews. Now, this is something that is rather noticeable for us. This is a tradition. This is a feast that they have kept for hundreds of years, so many hundreds of years. But yet, it is so religiously observed by them. See, divine institutions are never antiquated nor go out of date by the length of time. And so this comes into question for ourselves today. I think one big question that most people have today, especially during this period of, of, um, of COVID-19, one of the major questions that arise is the Lord's Supper. Is it a religious activity? Yes. We'll not deny that it is a religious activity. But we don't do it out of tradition, per se. We, we do it out of the purpose of it, the intent of it, the institution which God has given to us. Are we going to do away eventually with the Lord's Supper? In fact, some people will even say that we can do away with baptism too. How do we do baptism then? Can we really replace all these things with online? Just imagine someday, eventually, we do online baptism. Now, how does that work? Well, some people will say that just basically the pastor and the guy being baptized, baptized online. You know, then you will showcase them being baptized online and other people watch it. Well, I think that is okay. But eventually, would it not evolve to a point where the pastor will be sitting at home and the person being baptized will be beside a pool? And instead of the pastor really holding the man and giving uh, and baptizing him, instead they will look at each other and the pastor say something and pretend to baptize the person and the person goes down with the pastor. Now it sounds funny to us now, but I believe that is probable. 
today, we don't even participate communion face-to-face. -face. Some churches at least do not participate communion face-to-face. -face. They rather do online communion. How does that truly work? Someday, churches will start doing away with all these things. But it is to note that what has been divinely instituted by God must be kept by his people in the rightful manner. Now, the last thing that we note here is the way that Jesus mentioned about this Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tents, or Feast of Tabernacle. Now, the Jews' Feast, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Jesus doesn't say that our Feast of Booths, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that, oh, the Feast of Booths. He particularly insisted that it is the Jews' Feast of Booths. Now, of course, some people argue that it's like Chinese New Year, you know, the indication. But then again, there's a bit of difference here because we all know, everybody at that point know that it is the Feast of Booths belong to the Jews. Why did Jesus specifically mention about this feast of, uh, this Jewish feast? Well, because it was now shortly to be abolished as a mere Jewish thing and left to them that served the tabernacle. It is a warning to them that what they are keeping, the Jews are keeping, is not truly what was meant to be kept. Now, this feast will be abolished, will be done away, just like how the old covenant laws are done away. There's no more keeping of those things anymore. These things belong to the Jews. Let them keep it. We have something better. We have Christ with us. The Feast of the Booth celebrates God's indwelling among his people, dwelling in the tabernacle. But yet when we have Christ with us and in us, is there a purpose for this anymore? Is there a purpose for this feast anymore? Let the Jews in their vain and deceitful manner celebrate this feast. But we have Christ with us. Now, of course, there's much more things and much more details about this feast that I am unable to go through today. If you guys are if you guys are curious to see more about this feast, you guys may go online and search it up. And if you were to see the Old Testament reference of it, you guys can go to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 43 to take a look at it. But what is of most important here right now when we see this, this very verse? What should be the Christian attitude towards this feast? And what should be the Christian views of this feast? Especially the Feast of Booth in this case. Should we be despised by us? Or how should we view it? What was the purpose of it in the past then for us? For, for them and, and for us also in some ways. What was the purpose of this feast? The simple answer is a foreshadowing of Christ's coming. Just like many parts of the Old Testament this feast foreshadows Christ setting up a tent in each and every single one of his saints. So with that, uh, I will end off the session here today. Let me close us in prayer. And I hope that everyone can go back and spend, spend some time thinking through about these things also. Let me close us in prayer. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for bringing us together today. Lord, that we see 
your works being done, Lord, in Galilee, Lord. And we see from these stories, Lord, that your gospel does not only belong to the Jews, but belongs to each and every single one of us. We have been grafted into the olive tree, Lord. We have been grafted into your people. That we are the true Israelites. That the church is the true Israel. Lord, we thank you, Father, for granting us this salvation and granting us your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross, that we may receive salvation that we may be part of your church. Lord, may you continue to grant us your Holy Spirit to illuminate in us your word, that we may understand your truth, that we may learn from it, that we may live our life out as true and genuine Christians. Lord, we thank you once again for today. And we pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.